broadcasting through a vision from the prophets, or wormhole aliens if you prefer. This is Politrix. Welcome everyone to Politrex. We're happy to see you've dropped in to listen to us talk all things politics within Star Trek. We're proud members of the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network family, and it's exciting to see the family grow. That, and those who follow us and our base is starting to grow quite a bit too. There's been a lot of great conversation on Facebook and Twitter as of late, and we're really having a great time out there. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me, as always, is a man who consistently comes up with great show ideas, and uh, where would I be without him than my good dear friend, Mr. Shashankavaru. How goes it in your neck of the woods, sir? Namaste, Homo sapiens. I'm very excited, but it seems like Barry has gotten the better end of the exciting news deal. I'll let him share that with you. Just see if he can get on his social media. He has some uh, new things that he's just gotten into his life. I'll just leave it at that. But yes, if you've read the title of this episode, you're probably just as excited as we are, and we'll get to the good stuff, I promise. But before that, we have some news to talk about. We have some discussions that need to be had, uh, things that we have been away for two weeks so, so it's always a good time for us to just catch up and try to connect the real world with the star trek and make sense of reality using our favorite franchise but before we get to that we will just tell you how you can reach out to us because as barry mentioned a lot of good conversations happening in twitter did you know barry that in this one week alone we had tweets that were liked by both marina certis and terry farrell that made my week it totally made my week. I, I sat down and I looked at it and I was like, wow, they know we exist. And it's a nice feeling. It was it was like the it was like a rock star looking at you when you were in the crowd jumping to his song while he played his drum solo and just, you know, nodding his head. It was a beautiful rock star moment. We are nerds. It was. If you have any rock star moments, you can always call in and tell us all about it. You can call into our show at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. And uh, how else can they do that, Mr. Avaru? If you want to see all our Marina certified tweets, you can follow us on Twitter on at Polytrex. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. You can also follow us on Facebook on Polytrex. P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. And you can always reach out to us personally. If you get on these pages, you'll find our accounts linked as well. But we really want you to be there for all the sweet tweeting and making fun of people and writing up jokes that we think are funny and occasionally saying something smart, I'd like to think. I enjoy the idea of sweet tweets coming from our fine friends, even at the Tricoder Transmissions podcast. That's Shore Leave, Trek Ranks, Drawing Trek, Disco Trek, Reading Trek, Trek Profiles. It's all there. So seriously, you should 100% check it out. There's always some great things going on wherever we may be 
lurking in the uh, the Twitter feed or the Facebook land that it does exist. And if you really like our stuff, you can always support us on Patreon too. If you've got some extra quatlus or latinum, you can find the little blue Patreon button up on the top. And definitely, if you've got some extra cash, it helps us keep our uh, systems uh, at full. Yeah, and even though Quark doesn't think gold is very valuable. We would like to think we have some sweet podcast making gold for you in return for subscribing to Patreon. You get to listen to a lot of our shows, back-end recordings. You get to peek, get a peek behind the scenes. And in our case, we have something really cool coming up, which is just discussions between Barry and I that we do outside of the podcast that we save up. So you can listen to them, laugh with us, laugh at us. It's definitely worth your uh, subscription, we promise. Yeah, I would say probably within the time this episode drops, there's going to be one Patreon episode of amazing, delightful, gourmet, shall we say, gourmet banter between Mr. Avaro and myself. Yes, Barry makes Shashang hungry, and that's just one part of the hundreds of little segments that we go off on. It's pretty awesome. Well... I think with that, we will get ourselves into the news. So just last week, we had a very interesting sort of culmination of events that has taken place since the Florida Parkland shooting. Now, um, Shashank and I have talked about that, so we're not going to go too deep into the elements of what happened at that point, but really sort of what's been happening since, and that is the students of Parkland and students from really all over the place um, in the United States, even here in Canada, parts of Europe as well. I haven't heard of anything out of Asia or Africa, but definitely um, on this continent, at least uh, the northern part, there has been quite a bit. And also, you know, just students moving out, direct action, walking out of school. And then, of course, it all culminated to the big march for our lives in Washington, D.C., which saw an incredible amount of people all standing up and, uh, yeah, walking, walking to, uh, walking through the streets to, to voice their concerns and what's, what's important to them. And that sounds like getting some kind of gun control going. So I don't know, Shashank, you live in the States. Did you notice anything? I actually noticed quite a few things. One, because I have no social life and a lot of my evenings are just me looking at my phone until my eyes dry and burn. I did find a few tweets and articles that were commending the March for Our Lives moments happening in places like Asia. I saw a few rallies that happened in Japan. I saw some happen in Korea, south, of course. So it, it just it gave me a lot of joy seeing that it was not just a moment that went around in the West. It was a moment that reverberated around the world. And I love that. I loved seeing people come out from all over the country, all over the world to acknowledge the struggle that these kids are facing, acknowledge the collective struggle that we as a society are facing. It seemed like a very Romulans joining the Dominion War on the side of the Federation moment. You just didn't expect a lot of places to express the support that they were, mainly because they don't have the weapon-related issues that we have in the West. But as someone who lives in a red state, a place that is full of NRA advocates, I was also pleasantly surprised to see a lot of rallies happening here in here in Arkansas. It was, our news coverage was packed to the gills with just people and signs and all-around collective movement and expression, and I loved every bit of it. 
that's fascinating that that yeah i'm glad to hear that there were there were actions taking place in 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 many hemispheres in that sense of course you know i'm 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 a big fan of of the idea of school walkouts and student walkouts actually my my high school that i went to in edmonton i went to victoria composite high school in edmonton and there was a walkout of students there and so i was really happy to hear that and as a teacher i fully support students standing up and doing things that uh, could seem unorthodox or perhaps could disrupt school in some cases but if it's that important i think they should and the more active they become the better in my in my experience and in my opinion i think what it really does is it is it ensures that students don't become passengers in their own in their own education and in their life and they can understand that really when you are trying to create a movement when you're trying to bring forward something that is important to you it's not something that you just have to do once every 4 years you can do it anytime you can do it anywhere it's just getting the people together to do it so um, my hat definitely goes off to them I I'm very very grateful that I live in a country where there is true practice of freedom of speech. I think in a country where people can wrap bacon around the mouth of a gun and shoot it off as a commercial for running for president, Ted Cruz did this, you can look it up. When you can do that, I think it's completely justified and fully welcomed when kids who have survived a mass shooting march for their lives in startup hashtags like never again and all they really want is to go to a safe school it seems like a very simple thing to ask but i'll reiterate what i said a couple of episodes ago if we can't take care of our kids we really have to stop what we're doing and nothing should matter and i'm glad that the adults are now relying on the kids to help them deal with these situations and it's it's just joyful even as someone living in a red state locally i keep running into young kids who are holding clipboards and walking up to people and asking them to register to vote it's it's such a positive change i know something terrible has happened and lives have been lost but if that is what it takes for our society to turn around and ensure survival for all of us that is reasonable and peaceful it's it's nice to see the kids taking charge and it's it's sad that we as adults could not do better for them yeah there's a, there's a lot to unpack there and i think where i'm going to kind of go with this is to keep up that idea of the romulans entering the 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 dominion war because of course we know that their entrance into the dominion war was dubious and i would say that there's some things that are a little dubious that i think we as individuals in our respective countries should be aware of. The big thing here is my caution is saying that the violence that we have seen between, you know, young people, you know, mostly young white males, very angry, and killing a large amount of people en masse, this unfortunately isn't necessarily something that's alien to people of color, especially in the United States and in Canada. And the violence that they see inside of their communities and particularly from from different members of law enforcement and whatnot i mean i'm talking about stephen clark and fernando castillo i mean there's a ton of names that i could list off right now um up here in in uh in canada there's a few happening right now there's a case of a young man named colton bushy who was shot for trespassing on uh, on a farmer's property as well and so i think what we really need to think about here is when we advocate for gun control we have to understand that sometimes these types of laws are going to be enforced 
um, asymmetrically. And what I would say more than anything is understanding that just advocating for gun control isn't going to change much or anything at all. I think what it really boils down to, and, and this is from uh, just listening to other people speaking from uh, different other podcasts, like it's going down and such, that what we really need to start looking at is not gun culture, but culture, right? You would never take a shovel shopping, right? We, we don't fetishize the idea of, of, of owning a shovel and stuff. So I think maybe starting to move away from the fetishization of owning a weapon is really, really important, right? I've practiced karate for most of my life. I do own a katana. I own a Japanese samurai sword. And to be quite frank with you, I haven't really touched it in the last little while because it doesn't it isn't, it isn't a defining feature. If someone said, we're taking your sword away, I might ask why, but I mean, really, it's just a thing. It's, it's, it's not something that defines me in that respect, and I think that's really important that we need to start thinking about, because part of the problem here is this, you know, fetishization of gun culture. And in some cases, and in some parts of the world, people need guns to defend themselves, and I understand that. And when you look at the Second Amendment, it's the idea of building a functional militia that can defend itself, that can, that can provide for itself, right? Guns are a part of it. And I think that's something that we really need to understand here, that just blanket shutting down all gun ownership or, you know, saying that, you know, we, we, we're going we're gonna to make sure that, you know, these people, these criminals, these blah, blah, blahs don't have guns anymore. Unfortunately, the problem is it's going to become a target for, you know, working class, people of color, um, white working class, people who, who sometimes, you know, kind of fall outside of that that norm, that range. And, you know, not to not to belittle what happened to the students at Parkland. Obviously, as a teacher, this this breaks my heart. And I'm glad that they're advocating. And I'm glad that this is becoming a discussion. But I hope the discussion eventually moves into something a little more robust. Because I mean, when we think of Star Trek, right, think of think of the Enterprise, right? How many weapons do they have to choose from, unless you're Worf, on, on the Enterprise, you've got a hand phaser, and you've got like the rifle phaser, and that's it. You don't need anything else. There isn't anything more. You don't see like phaser collectors or or people who are fascinated with it. It's a tool. It's a tool for self-defense. It's a tool for sometimes like fake scoring shuttlecraft to confuse Cardassians. You know, like it's it's a part of it. And and I think if I've made myself clear enough, we can we can sort of see how just saying let's have gun control isn't necessarily the best route to take. What it really boils down to is what sort of culture are we looking at here? What sort of culture do we want to have? And where do guns fit within that culture? Just historically within the last year, if we were to unpack that question and try to answer it, in America, every time a mass shooting happens, the most noticeable thing as soon as it happens is that the sales of guns flares up. And that is a result of the propaganda being spread by people who profit off of guns, gun merchants, the NRA. These are people who who get legitimate money and financial power by spreading fear among people who already are open to the idea of owning a gun, especially after a mass shooting, because there is this idea of defense that I can sell you. And unlike Star Trek, where to talk a little bit more about your example with the phaser, you don't just see them shooting at people. You you also see phasers being used to break through rocks, to break through a lock, to come to get out of a hole. And in a lot of ways, it's shown as a shovel. It's shown very de-glamorized. It's shown at its bare naked form without any of the joy that you get from shooting a weapon, which you'd see 
more typically in an action franchise or a 90s movie in which people wearing shoot shoot up guns to rock music there is there's such a remarkable difference within star trek and it teaches us how how bad it is to fetishize weapons as you said how how bad it is to fall in love with that idea and it seems like there is at least 50% of the gun ownership culture that seems to buy into the idea that every time there's a mass shooting i need to stock up on my weapons like how we would stock up on groceries every time there's a snowstorm it's just there is a very bizarre deep rooted fear that needs to be dealt with it needs to be pulled out and we need to talk about it and it needs to be countered with logical discussion uh, and it brings to mind another one of my favorite episodes force of nature in which the environmentalists warn picard's crew about rifts being caused due to their warp drive and it's to me in situations like this it jo- it just not only reminds me of an episode in which there is environmentalism to be talked about it also reminds of taking something too far and in this episode there are two very different ideas two extreme positions as the episode unravels you find out that the envi- the environmentalists maybe actually want to shut down warp drive altogether and there is a similar idea going around in the bipartisan america where people are thinking maybe the other side wants to take our guns away which is not true the the truth is we want to find common ground much like in the episode where toward the ending picard's crew realizes they have to be more mindful about how warp drive is being used and they make a point to spread that message across the galaxy and i think yeah, along those lines we should be inspired by these movements not to take people's guns away but for common sense gun reform and getting people to a common solution so people aren't being shot up at schools that and and i would say also heavy-handed moments where where as well like people who are supposed to be protecting us are instead going for their guns first. And I think that's another very important piece of it that, you know, folks like Stefan Clark, we have to factor this into our gun control conversation that a person getting shot 20 times and then handcuffed after they've died because their cell phone was confused for a gun. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Or, you know, just because I mentioned him, Fernando Castillo, saying, I have a concealed carry permit. I have a gun, just so you're aware, right? I'm going for my license and registration. And that cop freaking out. Again, you know, what sort of culture is being built here? Um, Or, you know, there was the young man who was killed in a hotel. He was an exterminator and he had a pellet gun. And the cops came in and because he was crawling towards them but had to keep his hands up, his pants were falling down. He went for his the britches of his pants to get them back up. And that officer shot him and killed him. And there was some kind of like, you know, your effed or something like that it said on the gun um of this officer as well i mean there's something macho there's something kind of self-victimization mentality that these people who are pushing gun culture like say the nra they're not the victim they're they're paranoid and yeah there's some kind of adherence to some kind of uber macho don't tell me what to do kind of lifestyle when we need to start moving away and if common sense means that people start seeing guns as tools for you know personal protection for sport hunting uh for target practice for for being a part of a community rather than the dominant force within it i'm fully for it but i think yeah i think this this has to kind of dovetail out we can't just see it as a as a singular thing speaking of self-victimization and people pushing the victim idea onto themselves even though they are the empowered 
I'm sure everybody at this point has heard something about the Laura Ingram controversy. Laura Ingram, for those of you who are unaware, is a Fox News TV host who has her own web radio show, and she's a fierce Second Amendment advocate, a big supporter of President Trump. And over the last week, she has gotten in deep hot water because she made fun of David Hogg, one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting. And it's the entire situation is pretty complex, but essentially what happened, if I could drop a timeline, is Laura Ingram makes fun of David Hogg on Twitter because he did not get into some colleges that he had applied to. And the world erupts because it's logically, objectively horrible to make fun of a person who survived a mass shooting and is trying to bring positive change because of it. So David Hogg writes up a tweet in return saying everybody should boycott the top 12 advertisers of Laura Ingram's Fox News show. And Twitter blasts up the social medias of all these advertisers. And over three days, about 12 or 13 of their top advertisers are gone. And the situation as it stands now is Laura Ingram has been asked to take a week off her show. And there is a good possibility that show either might not come back or if if it does, she will be heavily censored. But there's a lot to take in there, isn't there, Barry? Oh, boy. Yeah. I would say that, like, just for that kind of opportunist sort of preaching from the pulpit of, of you know, sort of self-importance, Laura Ingram, and, and we'd mentioned this kind of in our pre-discussion, is basically Kai Wynn, I would say, in this, that the way she's saying things, it, it, she's alienating herself from, from say, the culture that she's supposed to represent. And, you know, when we think about the United States and divisions that have existed for, for a very long time, you know, and, and some of the some of the ways that, that people in, in positions of media power have tried to kind of bridge that and bring it together. I mean, she's definitely not a paragon of virtue, I guess you could say. And I guess, you know, if you're Kira Norris or, or even, uh, I think, Cisco, you can kind of, you kind of see Kaiwin coming from a mile away. And I guess seeing Laura Ingram kind of in this place, I don't really say, I can't really say I'm surprised, but uh, Kaiwin was a pretty good bad guy. The best part about bad guys is that usually in a story at the end, they have it coming. And it's wonderful to see that this happened so quickly and all through Twitter, which is the very place she started her entire rant about David Hogg with. The funny thing is she wrote up a Twitter apology that that wasn't really an apology, but clearly something that was scripted a la Sinclair broadcasting situation (laughs) where if somebody else had written it up and... She sent it to David Hogg saying, oh, I'm sorry, this happened. And then he wrote back, clearly saying, yeah, you apologizing for your advertisers is not really an apology. Talk to me when you have an real apology. And this brings to mind every situation in which you can clearly tell Kai Wynn, a woman of privilege and unearned power, a woman has got into her position through terrible, terrible, unspeakable ways, is telling a PTSD survivor, someone who has survived genocide, Kira, how to live her life and telling her maybe she doesn't know how to live her life and maybe she actually needs Skywind support and guidance and mentorship when 
clearly that woman has gone through hell and back there is such a dichotomy there and there is clear connection to real world people like this who get joy out of bullying innocent kids who are just trying to bring about positive change after what is clearly a traumatizing life changing event and i'm glad that things have gotten to a way in which we are now able to bring about change so quickly but there is a weird cnn article that also came out that disturbed me a little that seemed to not really take a protective stance of laura ingram but i'll just read you the headline it says our tv ads boycott the right way to protest it was essentially an article written about the whole laura ingram situation i think all protest is healthy and that's part of the freedom of speech that's promised to everybody and it just seems bizarre that somehow choosing a particular way of protest is the right way to go and there is a form of protest that is the wrong way to go clearly people on the other side have decided not to listen to liberal leaning politicians liberal leaning celebrities because that's what they're teaching is not what's for them and yet for some reason when people protest when people kneel in a football game when people stay silent during an event when people when people go out and boycott ads there seems to be something right and wrong about it it's it's a strange it's, i don't know why people would try to pick and choose what's a right way to protest isn't all protest freedom of speech and expression and isn't all of it supposed to be encouraged especially when it's for our kids just a thought that i leave you guys with Yeah, I would say, you know, there's effective protest and then there's ineffective protest and if you've got an ad company on one side of of a political news agency basically going, uh, maybe this isn't the best idea. I guess for me it's kind of like I think maybe they they saw the tide maybe turning in their direction and wanted to wanted to kind of temper that to a degree. It sort of makes me chuckle inside. And I guess it's kind of disappointing too. It's like finding finding out that the reason why Star Trek uniforms in the 60s were colorful was so that they could sell RCA TVs. So I guess, you know, if you get your news from CNN, if you get your news from Fox, just just know that the advertisers are definitely directing things, interest groups. There are lobby groups. There are board mm-hmm. of directors, just like there were at Desilu Studios back in the day. So, you know, you got to kind of take that and be able to parse that out. Um, even even we, we, we Star Trek fans have to understand that there's... Uh, a commercial nature to our our fandom and there are good elements of that i think um i can i could i could name some some more smaller businesses that i am that i am a fan of and and the work that they do but uh yeah and then there's there's other things that uh that can kind of come up from time to time where people try to take a little more of the pie than they should so just to leave you with a quote to quote the awesome rock band red hot chili peppers Space may be the final frontier, but it's made in a Hollywood basement. Delightful. Well, speaking of delightful, and speaking of Hollywood, I guess you could say, I don't know if they actually live in Los Angeles, but uh, some fantastic news. The late, great Leonard Nimoy had a posthumous birthday the other day, and something that brought a just a, a pang of joy to me was uh, the wedding of the always wonderful Terry Farrell and the ever delightful Mr. Adam Nimoy. It couldn't have happened on a better day, at a better time, and we just send our congratulations out to the happy couple. 
So, Trials and Tribulations aired 20 plus years ago. And in that episode, Terry Farrell's character, Georgia Dax, specifically takes 10 seconds to point out how hot Spock is. And then all these years later, she's married to her son. Find me at STLV. I will debate you why Star Trek, for reasons like this, is not just science fiction, but pure magic. Oh, it's predictive. Star Trek predicts everything, right? I mean, like phones, tablets, um, replicators, and the love between two fantastic people. So, I mean, just all killer, no filler here. They just keep they just keep hitting it out of the park. If Star Trek is so predictive, though, I wish Star Trek would predict if I'd ever find love. But that's a different episode. Well, we'll have to we'll have to look a little further ahead. And who knows? <laughs> there there are going to be some more seasons of Discovery coming, and there's a a vast mess and myriad of animated series TV shows that I can be honest I have never really fully watched my way through. So who knows? There could be something in there. Maybe there is a hawk eagle woman just waiting for you out there, Shashank. Who knows? That sounds wonderful. That's exactly what I've been after all the Star Trek watching and enjoying the various diverse opinions in that show. I am totally open to dating a hawk lady. Perfect. She, she'll 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 fly you to the moon and let you play among the stars. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so bad. We're keeping this on the recording though. That is that's what the show is about is us <laughs> making puns and laughing at ourselves. But exactly. on a more serious note, I'm so happy for Adam Nimoy and Terry Farrell. They're the sweetest, nicest people, and I'm very had, uh, happy they found love in each other. Absolutely, me too. And uh, yeah, if they ever want to be on the show, we will roll out the red carpet for them anytime. They have liked one of them has liked our tweets, so I don't think we are that far away. I I think if we find them at STLV and just hound them, they'll probably give us a two minute recording, which will be more than worth the the entire reason for the show existing. That or we'll get kicked out of the Rio, one or the other. <laughs> Too bad we don't live at the Rio. Eh? Oh. Well, I think it's time we move on to our next, uh, our main topic tonight. I'm excited to get this started. How about you, Shashank? I cannot wait. Well, let's get on to our main topic. Welcome back, guys, to the main topic of our show today. This is our first of hopefully many, many episodes in our Section 25 series. This mainly came up when I was up at 3 a.m. stalking all the podcast networks, looking up DS9 celebration episodes, but did not find anything as you would do on a regular Tuesday night. And I essentially just got a little disturbed that people aren't talking about DS9 as much as they should because it's one of the greatest shows ever made and it's its 25th anniversary. So I pitched to Barry a series in which we celebrate 25 things in different categories of Deep Space Nine. So over the Section 25 series, we hope you'll join us as we discuss 25 characters, 25 episodes, 25 moments, 25 dialogues, 25 locations, They'll keep coming as we keep coming up with them. And we will just break these down piece by piece, character by character, episode by episode, 
and try to connect them to the real world, talk about their social relevance, their political relevance, see how they as a character are interesting and what the political and social underpinnings are of the character. I want to specify that before we jump into this, that this is not a rank show. This is not a listicle. This is not something that will in some way pit the characters one against another. It's just 25 characters for this first part of our series in that we found particularly interesting that we'd like to talk about. And we'll hopefully do five characters in every episode and one honorable mention for this character series. Is that right, Barry? That is absolutely right. Yes, absolutely. If you guys want to do a rank series, the illustrious Mr. Jim Morehouse uh, over at Trek Ranks has you covered. Here, definitely, you know, we are not going to be going up and down, left to right. We're going to be going through each character thoroughly and methodically, um, as much as, say, like between six and ten minutes per character can allow, because, you know, we don't know how long you'll be folding laundry or how long you'll be driving for. So we want to make sure that uh, we keep it We keep it as... Uh, as as brief as possible, but also to add all the things that we feel is important about that character or different element of DS9. So for our first sub-series of Section 25, we will be talking about 25 characters. Characters that we found incredibly interesting, particularly special. These characters will not be limited to us to the amount of time they spent with us in the show. In fact, we actually have made it a goal that in every episode we will talk about a specific set of characters that feel the most diverse to us. For example, in each of our episodes, you'll find that we'll talk about one main character, one one episode wonder character, one female character and we'll we'll see the other two as they come up and our goal is to cover up as much ground as possible give you the most diverse opinions possible and just discuss the character based on how they triggered our political and social nerves as opposed to what particularly the actor's performance might have been or how much time was spent during the course of that show But the idea really is just break this character down politically, socially, and see what we find that is interesting and worthy of a podcast episode. I am so excited for this, and I kind of want to just bust right in if that's good with you. Is that good with everyone? I I think people are already ready. We've buried the lead so far now. The first character we'd like to talk about is Kira, Kira Nuris. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Okay, so first of all, just... Her characterization, her arc, all the way through Deep Space Nine. I mean, if there was going to be a spinoff of Deep Space Nine, Kira Norris needs to be the main character. Because if you see her from season one to season three to season five to season seven, you get you get such a layered character. You get such a nuanced character, you know, um, She's going to come up from time to time, I think, throughout this this whole um, listing and 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 discussion about different characters. Because without without Kira Nerys, there is no Deep Space Nine. She she is a integral ingredient. Would you agree, Shashank? Absolutely. I think with Kira, the Star Trek creatives picked up 
the PTSD side of things and portraying a survivor character where they left Tasha Yar and Roel Aronoff. And I think Kira did it better than both those characters, mainly because she's so integral to the entire story. Unlike Tasha Yar, who famously, the actress had decided to leave the show because she wasn't getting as much meat in the story of things as she wanted. Without Kira, you're absolutely right. The the story of Deep Space Nine, the connection between Bajor and the station, the connection between Starfleet and the Bajoran people, the connection between Bajorans and the wormhole aliens, none of that connects so beautifully and makes sense to us and gives us all the feels, as the kids say, if there was no Kira. So talking about Kira a little bit, she, to me, first and foremost, reminds me of a... As soon as I looked at this character in the show, I immediate, my head immediately went to survivors of the Holocaust. My head immediately went to the Roland type character who uh, were forced to take up violent means of resistance, were caught up in the kerfuffle, and were forced to experience the deaths of their people, the destruction of their civilization. And now they have the hardest ch- challenge in that situation, they're cursed with the life and they're forced to go on and they have to accept a new form of society that is coming toward them after everything they ever loved and cared for was taken away so violently from them. Absolutely. You've, you've covered a lot of really great ground that I, I, I have to pay some, some, some time toward. So first of all, the connection between her and Tasha Yar I'll be honest with you, Shashank, I never really thought of that. And now that I'm thinking about it, so many like like Tetris pieces are, are coming together. And, you know, what I loved about Tasha Yar is she was a strong female character. Her her femininity matched so well with, with her authority, with what she she built as a character. And she was never a damsel in distress. Neither character were. And that's something that I honor and, and love quite a bit. Of course, uh, I have a lot of uh, very strong, strong heroines, female heroes in my life. And definitely, that is one of the draws that I have to both characters. I would say further on as as the the sort of survival of the Holocaust um, motif that takes place with the entire uh, culture of Bejor, I think you're really on point. And, and a lot of people who have survived these sorts of mass traumas, right? You could think of, uh, you could think of the Armenians in Turkey, you could think of um, what happened in Rwanda, you, you could even go so far as to to look at how people in Chile were under the Augusto Pinochet regime, you can sort of see how they they all sort of react and have to kind of rise themselves out of this. Now, Kira, what I like about her as well is she also sort of takes this this role not only as someone who survived a great trauma, but also as someone who is in in that sense also being a revolutionary. And what I like about Kira is she really explores her character very very adeptly explores the experience of the revolutionary, the former revolutionary, and she is no longer one. She has she has made a choice. In this respect, she is what happens to the revolutionary when there's nothing to fight for in that respect anymore. At least she she sort of thinks that way. Where I want to go into this is the character and the episode called Shakar. Now, for those of us who don't know, spoiler alert, um, I am blanking on the season all of a sudden. I think it's season three. 
And she goes back to Bajor because Kai Wind is up to no good. And an old revolutionary friend named Shakar is planning on plan, sort of implanting a resistance against Kai Wind's whims. And they get to the point where they're just about to open an ambush on a bunch of Bajoran soldiers. And they realize, wow, you know, we're killing comrades in arms. And she chooses the democratic route. She tells Shakar, you know, this isn't the way we're going to solve this. So as the revolutionary, she is now choosing in this respect to turn that revolution off. She is going for a different way. She has accepted the hegemony of the current Bejoran leadership structure as supported by the Federation, and she makes a very solid choice right there. So she's very much the revolutionary who has changed over this time. She is no longer accepting a revolutionary role. And that's interesting. I also find it fascinating because, of course, she falls in love with Odo. And again, you have the anti-establishment revolutionary falling in love with basically a police officer. So she is a fantastic contradiction, right? It's it's sort of like if if I was to use a... uh, if I was to use an analogy, it's the the idea of nice warm apple pie and cold ice cream in one in one spoonful, right? It's there's the hot and the cold, and it comes together, and you get this amazing character who is so nuanced and is in conflict, and that conflict really doesn't end, even when she has to don a Starfleet uniform in season seven, right? You can feel she's itching inside of it. She's not comfortable to be there because she's accepting. A hegemony, and I don't think Kira wants that ultimately deep down inside of her. And so, yeah, I'd love to see what season eight of Deep Space Nine would have had with Kira Norris running Deep Space Nine. Absolutely, a lot of good points, a lot of interesting food for thought there. No pun intended. There is <laughs> certainly a lot. There is certainly a lot of interesting parallels that you can draw with a character like Kira. But just to pick up on some of the Tasha Yar Kira analogies and role Aaron analogies actually one of the other cool of one of i think the million cool things that star trek did is with characters like tashayar role Aaron, and kira you'll see that they took up a different mantle of a female character they showed us how there are some women in whose lives love turns out to be the curse as opposed to the most typical story food that we get in which we accept that love saves a woman, that love changes a woman's life for the better. You'll see over and over that until she actually falls in love with Odo, who's a genderless, shapeless alien, completely away from the typical definition of a man, she keeps falling in love and she keeps falling in situations where there is affection waiting for her, but for some reason, she just can't seem to grasp at it. This is very similar to Tasha Yar's character, very similar to Roe Laren's character. And when you look at these analogies, you see that Star Trek deals with characters as human first. And the fact that that representation was never there for characters like that and for fans who used to enjoy the show in spite of being single women, in spite of not being in a relationship as society would probably will them to be. I think there is a lot of recognition there, which another reason, which is another reason why we celebrate Kira today. And just not just uh, going back to history in situations where we found out about a lot of 
the genocide survivors, even today, we see in our world, the Palestinians, for example, who are, do not have a land that they can claim and they are constantly facing death and destruction every day and they're growing up without a sense of identity attached to a land or identity attached to a particular form of religion that is accepted by everyone. And again, Kira is analogy for a character like that too. And just before I go into our other characters, the one thought I would like to leave you guys with is Star Trek Deep Space Nine should be celebrated even more because even with a character like Kira, the minutest of detail mattered so much to the writers that they actually come full circle with a character like Kira. When you go to the mirror universe, the oppressed become the oppressors. Kira is the empress there. She's not someone whose land has been taken away. She's the one taking the land away. And that is just another interesting fiction perspective that we get to enjoy that character from. And that's why she's so well-rounded. So this could just become an episode on Kira if we're not too careful, because <laughs> she's Absolutely. such a layered character. You know, we will have to go into the Politrex of Kira Norris at some point. And uh, heck, you know what? Nana Visitor, if you're listening, um, I'd love to do an Inside the Actors Studio conversation with you. Both Shashank and I would, uh, we'll, we'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll like mail you some kind of care package of some sort. Um I'm Canadian, so I can send maple syrup, I guess, if you want stereotype. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, we, we have to, I think that's what this has to boil down to, because it's time to move on to our next character, and that is the illustrious Tosk. So I'm going to get this started. So Tosk comes from the episode with O'Brien called Captive Pursuit. Before I get into this, just right off the hob, I just want to give a shout out to Mr. Dan Davidson of the Trek Geeks. He, of course, you just go go and listen to their episode on Captive Pursuit. There is a trigger warning, I will just add, because it does deal with some very heavy things. But um, it brought a tear to my eye, first of all, and it gave me a broader um, give me a broader understanding of of Dan's struggle as a human being. And when I see him next at STLV, whether he likes it or not, he's probably going to get a really big hug. Because when I heard his story, it broke me. And it made me go back into looking at Captive Pursuit and, and understanding this this character and, and O'Brien's conversation with Tosk a little bit later. So this one's personal, I will say, and personal in the sense that it's not for me personal, but a friend of mine has made it personal and it's given me a brand new appreciation for it. So my political take, my social and and uh, societal underpinning of this is I really feel like Captive Pursuit in itself brings an idea of to break the rules is often the most humane thing. However, the biggest challenge is often the person who is following the rules, not the not itself the rule. So let's say we need to tell a person within, say, a cult, right? A cult that they've been raised in. And, and we have to get them outside of the idea that they have to do some, that they don't have to do some weird and bizarre task, right? Some cults have weird and bizarre tasks that I don't really want to get into, but let's just say... Ultimately, it's not the rule that you need to break down itself. It's the person who is following that rule that needs to be encouraged to to see beyond it. So 
I really think that the interesting riff that that Deep Space Nine does here is both Tosk and O'Brien themselves are subject to rules that may not necessarily make sense to 20th, 21st century viewers. So I feel like Deep Space Nine is jabbing a little bit at the Prime Directive. Of course, Benjamin Sisko says specifically about breaking the the prime directive and he choose he choose o'brien out for it but honestly i think o'brien did the right thing i guess you could say that o'brien in this case does the wrong things for the right reasons and when it comes down to it i really think that the prime directive had to be ignored so you know i mean o'brien himself was on the enterprise with picard and of course one of my favorite quotes by picard and and this of course comes from an episode i've forgotten but the great david a goodman edited a autobiography of jean-luc picard where the quote says there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute even life itself is an exercise in exceptions and so when commander cisco starts chewing O'Brien out. He says, you ignored your duty to Starfleet. You took off your combat so you could ignore me. You even ignored the Prime Directive by interfering with their demand, their damned hunt. Another stunt like this, and your wife won't have to complain about the conditions here anymore. Do I make myself clear? Now, I don't do a very good Avery Brooks impression, but Avery Brooks is is running this line that O'Brien has to follow that ultimately parallels very nicely with the line that Tosk has to follow with this weird, you know, death-defying interstellar game of tag. And both of these things, if you really go down to the brass tacks of it, sometimes really don't make sense, and the rules should probably be flubbed and flaunted and gotten rid of from time to time. So going back into Captive Pursuit for myself, I really see this as, sure, follow the rules if you're playing a sport, but outside of that, um, there's got to be some exceptions. I've talked for a long time on this, Shashank, what do you think? To me, Tosk is the best one-episode, one-day character, and I'm so glad we are discussing him first in our series. The best thing about Tosk is he reminds me, as someone who grew up reading Conan the Barbarian, stories about gladiators, stories about outlaws, he reminds me of the gladiators of old. And in a very nice, fun... There is a lot of humor in that character, which I don't think he gets enough credit for. The way he says, oh, Brian... Uh, asylum. There, there is just such a joy in hearing a character who's so innocent and naive, which is something, again, O'Brien points out in the episode. Going back to the game discussion that you were having there, I do think in this episode, Cisco is a hypocrite because Cisco one says we should not we should not disobey the prime directive. Then Cisco is the exact same guy who tells Odo Odo, there is no hurry. You can take your time. Essentially slipping into him the idea that it's okay for O'Brien to help Tosk escape. And that is because everything is fair in the hunt. Even though he doesn't, on the surface, disobey the prime directive, he slightly does not stop people from disobeying it either. And the yelling at the end does seem like a bit... Theatrical to me, I think both Cisco and O'Brien acknowledged that this was the right thing to do. And that's why when O'Brien has the epiphany while Quark is bugging him, where he says, if you you don't like the rules, you change the rules. And that's what he does. And 
there is so much layered discussion about the prime directive there the entire episode is one an examination of the prime directive to me and there are a lot of real parallels today in which how everybody uses peace to wage war they use war to establish peace there is a lot of dichotomy and the ouroboros eating itself into which we see a lot of situations that start out violent in the name of nonviolence protests that are termed peaceful but end up being violent because that was their point all along there are a lot of places you can go with that but i'll stick to talking about ask simply because i love him so much there is no sense of identity for that character if i had to imagine a childhood for him i'd believe he would be grown up he'd be raised saying you have to die one day and your death is the ultimate honor you could have and death in the hunt is the ultimate honor you could have which reminds me again of klingons it reminds me of the japanese samurai of old and just on an on a tangent if you have never seen seven samurai it's one of the greatest movies ever made but you'll see characters like those who are simply there to be killed in honor they their entire lives have been building up to a moment of death and that is there is something so interesting about a character like that but on a more serious note with tosk he is unfortunately to me an allegory about slave labor he is an allegory about sex trafficking victims people who are just taken up as property and sold in hush circles and whose entire lives are spent as mere objects of amusement and service and i think there is so much to unpack there which is why the deep space nine creatives realized they really should have used tosk as a character or the tosk idea a lot more and i believe that is where the gem hadar came from and that segues perfectly into what we're talking next so you've mentioned slave labor you've mentioned the idea of people working completely in service for another and um i am actually going to quote the third ramada clan this comes up on trek cranks again so a quick Second shout out to Mr. Jim Morehouse, but I am a Jemhadar. He is a Vorta. It is the order of things. That right there is probably one of the most frustrating lines one can ever have. And it is because you just realize that there is no negotiation with this individual who is a slave. They are a person who is bred for a specific purpose, and they have accepted their lot on a level that is so deeply ingrained within their genetic code that there's nothing you can do. And I find sometimes we end up, as a society, being very hard on people who are in professions or jobs that could be considered less than savory, and we go, well, just just get out of it, right? Just get away. You have to understand that there's a psychological uh, underpinning to when people are involved in these, these heavier practices, right? A lot of people who have to work in sweatshops, for instance, they have to do it because they see the outcome of their sacrifice and, and working in, in horrible working conditions. And, you know, you don't have to cross the ocean to find horrible working conditions. In that respect, you see people who give themselves for what they think is a cause that is going to help another. Nobody wakes up in the morning and decides to work in a job that we see, or a, a you know, job is a pejorative term here, 
they don't wake up and, and, and see this as necessarily a good idea. But leaving it can sometimes be just as hard. And think about the Jem'Hadar, if they were to break free. I'm sort of reminded of Orwell talking about a boy who's whipping this oxen. And this is sort of the premise for the book Animal Farm, is, you know, if only the oxen knew its power, it could overcome the boy. But if we know the story of Animal Farm, ultimately animals end up enslaving themselves, right? A group of animals kind of take this role over and become the slave masters. And if you think about, you know, sort of what ends up happening in historical revolutions, one of the biggest problems, one of these sort of dead failures that we sort of see in revolution that we kind of get caught up on. Dead failure means we've we've already gotten over it, but we continuously, f- you know, fall into the same pit of, of, of failure is that we release ourselves of our despotic rulers only to replace ourselves with other despotic rulers. And I worry sometimes the Jem'Hadar are a more nuanced character in that sense, because even if they did manage to emancipate themselves and fight against the Vorta and the founders, that there would end up being a Jem'Hadar or several Jem'Hadars who would take the role that they fought against and ultimately just create a brand new system of control over the rest of them it wouldn't be he's a gem he's a you know i'm a gem hadar he's a vorta it'd be he's you know the first dramata clan and therefore i must listen to him is that making sense shashank you are making a whole lot of sense my friend and just to add to some of the things you were talking about i think it's very important to recognize context with the gem hadar the fact that they are an entire species and even with the characters they don't look different they don't dress very differently you yourselves have trouble making the distinctions valid for yourselves in your head when you're looking at them when they're on screen i appreciate things like that when in a world in which we live where everything in tv has to be unique different distinct the next best thing that they really used an entire species to convey the idea of slavery and slave labor and for us to accept that as both tragic and still not be on the side of that character that is a very interesting story political and social place to come from one thing i do find fascinating is the jemhadar who are raised within the alpha quadrant versus the gamma quadrant the gamma quadrant jemhadar do actually treat them differently and that's something that's kind of neat too and it's Something that, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jashank, no one would notice if they weren't looking hard enough, but you can see those subtle details. And it sort of reminds me on this sort of slave motif that there were people, if we look at, say, um, African-American people who were enslaved uh, during, you know, sort of uh, the Southern and and other parts of the United States uh, agricultural boom that they would treat slaves differently. There would be a hierarchy among them. So that that's a fascinating point. Anyway, I'll let you get back to what you're saying. The idea, broadly though, with the Jem'Hadar to me, is an allegory for slave labor. One of the reasons why the entire slave movement and the abolition of slavery took that long is not just because there were white people who were against it. There were people in the African-American community who had been subjected to this life, who had accepted that this was the way of things. And as heartbreaking as that is, the fact that the show showed that that bravely and never turned on its head the fact that there are these people who are genetically inbred and their lives have for so long now been so accustomed to being under the thumb of another species 
that they really took that that far and while showing us a story from a few thousand years after and telling us about our own lives, that seemed very fascinating to me. And that is, I think, the most socially and politically relevant point about the Jamhadar is not the fact that there are people who are pressing them down. It's that if you as an antagonist and someone who wants to spread slavery if you are doing it in the most methodical execute and executing it with the utmost amount of resources there is a problem that arises when the subspecies itself that you have made up also has decided that they do not actually want the freedom that they might have a way to get to and that is so heartbreaking and it's so that is so reminiscent of the of the movement and that's why it's so endearing at the end of deep space nine when the good guys win is because you see that as tough as this war was such atrocities have been stopped from being committed in the future i just want to leave our uh, listeners with a story about one of the revolutions that were attempted to start the freedom movement in india india got its freedom in 1947 but this had been going on for quite a while and there was a failed revolt that happened in 1857 and it all hinged on the leadership of one man named Mangal Pandey and he was a soldier who was working in the then british empire and the british had just issued a new round of bullets that were coated in pig skin mangal pandey a devoted hindu would never allow his mouth to be touched by the pig skin so he would protest to his leaders in the british empire telling them i can't use these bullets because they are coated in pig skin and when they force him to use it he essentially goes rogue and he starts his own revolt and the entire country for a few days is captivated and inspired because there is finally someone who has taken up the mantle of going against the british and hopefully starting a revolution but unfortunately it failed within a few weeks of it starting not just because the british were successful in stopping the revolt but there were so many indians who at the time were technologically mentally and physically inequipped to fight the british empire they had just accepted that the way of things was the british were our rulers and we would not go against them so the fact that over time over generations over countries these stories keep repeating and we get to see them in the jamhadar strikes the deepest intellectual and political warmth that i have inside me every time i try to seek out some interesting sci-fi that's that's very fascinating i've never heard that story before maybe i'll finish us off uh, on the gem hadar with uh, in their and their perceived order of things and and that connection you made uh, is actually by kumasi is his name he is a uh, an intellectual from california who talks about the gang relations that take place in uh, in los angeles and he said Part of the mechanics of oppressing people is to pervert them to the extent that they become the instruments of their own oppression. And I think you've you've nailed it there with that historical perspective and also what we're looking at with the Jem'Hadar. So we're going to move on now to, we're, we're shifting gears big time to a character who I quite enjoy. And of course, he had his start in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, but uh, definitely gets his his send-off in Deep Space Nine. And if you are following where I'm talking here, we're going to talk about Mr. Tom Riker. 
Tom Riker, of course, comes in as an imposter in the in the episode Defiant and ends up trying to hijack the Defiant to go fight on the behalf of the Maquis. Now, that all sounds well and good, but I'm going to drop in Major Kira Norris again with a quote when um, she says, The Maquis are terrorists, and the only thing terrorists care about is attacking the enemy. I know. I was a terrorist. And if I had this ship then, I would have destroyed Deep Space Nine. I would have hit the Cardassians so hard they would have screamed for peace. But I certainly wouldn't have gone off flying in the middle of Cardassia on some wild goose chase. Tom Riker then replies with, well, I guess we're different kinds of terrorists. Kira then replies says, no, you're a hero. Terrorists don't get to be hero. Now, okay, first of all, I'm going to just quickly say, Kira, why are you calling yourself a terrorist? And that says a lot about her character, but we've already talked about her, so we have to move on revolutionary. Revolutionaries cannot be heroes. That is just not what they can do. They don't seek it. They shouldn't seek it, because if they do, if they start seeking for that that personal glory, well, then what of the revolution? And this nails it so hard for me, because in this case, Tom Riker, being the, I don't know, pattern-buffered version of Will Riker, he does not make a very good revolutionary or terrorist or whatever you want to call him. He He's he's Will Riker part two. He makes a very good bridge officer. He's a Starfleet officer. And he knows um, how how to, you know, act within that vein. And, and to a degree, I mean, Will Riker is our swashbuckling character in the next generation. And, and of course, if that's the case, then Tom Riker is sort of the adjunct of that. What we see here is, yeah, we get a, a silly flyboy looking to make a name for himself, trying to be the hero of the cause and stuff. And that never, never ends up well. I would say that Eddington kind of is is sort of like the the final poetic piece of, of what Tom Riker sort of ends up being, because uh, Eddington does some similar things. Instead of hijacking the Defiant, he sabotages a thing to crap. And I'm pretty sure we'll end up seeing Mr. Eddington somewhere along the line in our in our lists. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with, with Riker. I don't have as much to say about him other than the fact that he's basically, if Will Riker didn't get into Starfleet and he tried doing something else, he'd probably be pretty bad at it. And here we have it. I think it's interesting that when they chose to bring back Riker, they did that flip and use Tom Riker instead because that seems like that is what the show demanded. I don't think Will as a character would have worked in a crew that was not functioning well. I don't think Will as a character would have made sense in an organizational situation in which essentially there is no there is a lot of conflict as opposed to TNG in which the entire show hinges on not having any kind of conflict within the organization that's running the ship so i do i i do appreciate a that tom riker is brought in and was used and b tom riker is a good space example of why freedom fighters fail most recently, if you look at the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring is not just noted as a series of revolts that succeeded. It's also noted for a series of revolts that failed. And unfortunately, today, we can't, cannot stop ourselves from thinking over and over about Syria, which is one of the biggest, most heartbreaking failures of the Arab Spring. And the part of the reasons why some freedom fighters fail is even though their intentions might be good, they're just simply not smart enough to outsmart the technological organization 
national empire that has been built that they're trying to fight. And that's why Tom, even though he looks at the situation as something he can actually get out of, he does not account for the fact that the people around him might be smarter than he actually thinks they are and he gives them credit for. And even though in this small episode we see him in that situation, he's a much bigger allegory for the freedom fighters that fail. I've talked about Bhagat Singh before on our podcast you can go back and listen to more of what i had to say about him but he is in a sense a failed freedom fighter as well but i think the biggest reason why thomas Riker as a character failed and did not win is because he romanticized martyrdom and that's why he was okay with being a terrorist even for terrorists if you look at the situation as a revolution and you look at it as your life being given in pursuit of destruction there is no place in history where something like that has actually accounted for a positive change. When you are A, a small group of people, B, only trying to cause violence for the sake of violence, and C, your entire idea is to bring about destruction, which goes back to the quote you made, Barry. As a person, that much negativity and that much hate can only lead to destruction and not anything positive. And that's why I think it's interesting that Thomas Riker is a character we are discussing who's the polar opposite of some of the characters that we've discussed so far, but he's interesting as a failure nonetheless to me. And in that in that failure, I think it sort of tamps down where we see, basically where we see the 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 purpose of uh, the purpose of, of of what a revolutionary needs to be. And I guess I don't want to go too too far into this, but. You know, where the Maquis really sit for me is, is I don't know if someone somewhere within uh, within Deep Space Nine writing staff was reading the works of like Mao Zedong, but the idea of a, protect, a protracted people's war, right? You know, we shall heal our wounds, collect our dead, and continue fighting, right, is sort of where the, the Maquis kind of go from. And that, that is actually a quote from, from Mao Zedong himself, in the sense that they're not going to stop. And that kind of protracted people's war, small attacks to to disrupt, to disable, to harry and hamper the larger force, and in this case it would be Cardassians, and to a degree the the United Federation of Planets as well. You don't need people, like you said, Shashank, kind of looking for that martyrdom. Don't be looking to die. If you die, you die. You just have to keep fighting. You have to keep going. You are part of a greater cause, so fall in line. And yeah, I think that's where where you just sort of see kind of like, I don't know, Tom Riker is kind of like, he, he got a big, big weapon, and it's sort of like a kid with his dad's gun. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And he reaps the benefits of that. Speaking of someone who enjoys reaping benefits, the Grand Nagus. Oh, Quark. Oh, boy. So the Grand Nagus. Oh, yes. You know, he is a character who, again, kind of like the Traveler, gets maligned. And Shashank, you have, you have, you have waxed lyrical about this character enough that I have decided to jump in over the last, since we've started this, this podcast every now and again, as I'm doing my deep space nine rewatch, which has maybe happened more than once or twice, um, that I've, I haven't been skipping the Ferengi episodes as often. And it's out of appreciation for your appreciation of the Ferengi. So you've already won me over for the grand Nagus. Win our listeners over. 
first off good job i'm glad you're finally recognizing quality television within star trek the ferengi episodes are some of the best star trek episodes ever made the best thing about the ferengi is as i was mentioning this to you off air it's that they sneak in a fantasy world into the realm of science fiction and they make it so entertaining all the episodes when you see they are transported to a different planet where money is a magical object and possessing it makes you more powerful the fact that they do that with in the setting of something that is so deeply science fiction that is one big reason why you should actually enjoy watching that that series of episodes star trek stops being star trek it becomes game of thrones and it's awesome but the best thing about the grand negus to me is that he is an old man trying to become youthful again the grand negus is the emperor of all he's the richest ferengi he has all the resources and power and he yet for some reason cannot seem to be happy and it's because he has grown to be accustomed to a lifestyle he has grown to be accustomed to privilege and when a woman comes along and she questions it and when mugi keeps pushing him to not make change to think about the way things are and to consider change he is suddenly someone who becomes saddened because he realizes that what mugi is saying is right is that it's time for the ferengi to change it's time to bring about gender equality it's it's actually important that as a grand negus you don't just enjoy the success that you keep blessing on to all the males that you give the females a chance and she essentially teaches him to think along the lines of if not you then who if not now then when the grand negus knows within his heart of hearts that these changes need to come about and that's why when mugi pushes him the, he needed that push from a female character who has been oppressed her entire life to go over that line and say yeah i am going to make this change i am going to bring in the strong powerful female ferengis that are in our society but are ignored every day and while for a character like quark it's immediately something that is irkful something that he cannot take in with as much enthusiasm as everyone else i do think quark is just another grand negus waiting to happen he now wants to run in an election to get that position so he can reverse these rules but he'll probably a few decades later come to realize that the grand negus and his mother were both right all along i do think the grand negus is very much as just one character an allegory for the 90s and how you saw a growth in the female jobs in the tech industry you saw a growth in females taking over more of the traditional male jobs in the world and how star trek used that change that was happening in the world women taking more interest in sciences women being recognized more in literature and the idea that there was gender equality happening not just in one particular field but over various industries over various social and physical sciences over the entertainment industry the fact that all of this was happening at the same time and that deep space nine tapped into it by showing us just to through two simple very friendly very jolly very weird very odd looking funny characters that you would on the surface accept as just enjoyable diversions the fact that they dealt with something so serious and taught us something so good about our species and how we should be grateful that we had the suffragette movement that how we should be grateful that 
women all around the world in most places today can vote and they have the freedoms that we men have and how we should not be afraid of them but accept them how they use these tiny characters with their big lobes to teach us that and through the grand negus that is fascinating and poetic and it brings a lot of nerdy a uh, feminist joy to my heart this is why Shashank Kavaru needs to be on a Ferengi panel at Star Trek Las Vegas. So, Creation, if you're listening, get this man on your stage because he he has he has the answers. So, all of the things you've said, I agree with. And so, my take on him, just from my watching, is I love how again the the writers in Deep Space Nine take a kind of failed bad guy turned comical you know monster of the week that occurred in the next generation and build up this culture of yeah that sort of galactic capitalism that they that they exist within and then they just slowly unravel them for seven seasons and and this idea of bringing about change and stuff like that you know basically the rules that codify what the grand nagus have to be are things that the grand nagus himself don't really liked and you don't really doesn't really like and you can see his con- his conflict uh, beneath this veneer and that he that he wants change i would say that one thing that that happens and i'm going to sort of sidestep a quote from from the notorious big where he talks about more money more problems i would say that my uh, not rapping self would say that you become a prisoner of your own success and the grand nagus very much is that he has a pretty nice you know outward outward sort of disposition but you can tell that his position is more limiting than it is freeing. And Shashank, your your talk about gender equality, you can see where his heart of hearts is taking him. And it, it takes that sort of emancipation through collaboration that, that he has with, with Mugi and sort of getting this this change. And you watch Quark, Armin Shimmerman just totally sort of narrates the his frustration with, with the whole the whole situation so well. And ultimately, what you end up getting is a is a nuanced character, one who you got to get around the voice. Um, but ultimately, he is really important because you see a character who who wants to see a big amount of change, but it, it takes Rom to do it. And that's a really interesting thing that he himself is unable to do it because you're right, Shashank, he doesn't have the youth. He doesn't have that ability. Thank you for saying all those wonderful things. I'm so glad I could at least turn your opinions a little toward the positive about the Ferengi and I'm glad you have come around on the Grand Nagus because I think he's incredible. And before we end our first part of the five episode series we have for the 25 characters in section 25, I just want to leave us all with Ferengi rule number 77, rules of acquisition, go where no Ferengi has gone before. Where there is no reputation, there is profit. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's delicious. I like that quite a bit. So, as a final honorable mention, Shashank, I have a sudden and off-the-cuff piece here that maybe instead our honorable mention could go to a vote. Who should our honorable mention be? And maybe the folks in Twitter and Facebook can give us the answer. Absolutely. And we will add that to the Twitter thread when we announce this episode and we share some reading material and interesting links about the five characters we talk about. You guys decide and we'll make that the honorable mention. 
We'll give you a list and you get to decide from there because we do have a list of 25 from me and 25 from Shashank who we will be bringing up. Well, folks, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We are excited to have you. Of course, if you have anything that you do want to uh, contribute, add to, build on this conversation about these five characters just to start, feel free to call us uh, at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. And then, of course, you can get us on social media platforms. Shashank, can you tell us all about that? Absolutely. And people who are listening... A, follow us on Twitter on at Polytrex, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S, and B, follow us on Facebook on Polytrex, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S, and C, please do me a favor, tell me what your favorite rule of acquisition is. I just quoted mine. I would love to hear yours. I'm going to add that too, because now I don't really know. And of course, folks, I did do a little shout out there about Captive Pursuit. If you are interested in any more enjoyable episodes, first of all, Check out all of our other episodes on the Tricorder Transmissions. We have a ton. It's the greatest thing. I gave a list at the beginning, but if you have any more Star Trek listening pleasure that you want to get to, check out Dan and Bill of the Trek Geeks. They're loads of fun outside of the heavy episode, but also their 100th episode, Journey to Futures Past, is also loads of fun too. So with that, we'll say to you all to live long and prosper. And onward to the sacred marketplace. I mean, Star Sighting. 